Welcome to The Professor and The Coach. These are going to be a set of conversations with Professor of Leadership at Henley Business School, David Pendleton, and myself, Master Coach Guy Bloom. David and I met on an earlier episode of the Leadership Bites podcast. We got on absolutely famously and then started to have conversations that we suddenly thought we should probably be recording and putting out there. So that's exactly what we've done. David and I will be picking up on topics connected to leadership and things that are current in the media that we feel are relevant for a conversation. So on that note, enjoy the episode. Hi, David. Well, hi. How are you doing? I am good. I'm uh, caffeined up and uh, all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready to rock and roll. I, I recognize I don't have my notepad ready, so I've got to, I've got to sort that out. But uh, good to see apropos you. Of, apropos of that, I came across a quote from David Letterman that said, before his first cup of coffee in the morning, he had no discernible personality whatsoever. Sometimes I'm like that. <laughs> All right. I've come to the conclusion I'm not addicted to coffee because I can actually go without it. You know, like when I've been away for a well, couple for, of weeks. For minutes on end, you mean? No, no, I can. I can just go two weeks as I've done it. But I just really like it. I've just. <laughs> I, but that is that. That's what I think. It's not a problem. I just really like it. <laughs> addict. Addict. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Oh, gold. But anyway, um, so listen, we, we, we set ourselves a, a bit of a, you know, when we started doing these things, we said we'd come at this from a position of dealing with things that were, you know, good discussion topics. And then we would react to things from time to time in the news. And you raised on our last recording this, you know, how how far do we want to go? How deep do we want to go? How tangible do we want to make our reflections? And it's not so much that we've come at this from an academic perspective, but it's been more of a discussion point and we've leaned into things that might be going on around us. But I think this is a topic that we want to bring to the table that is very real in the news right now. And you know, again, unscripted, but just our thoughts, reactions to the situation in Afghanistan. And I think that's something that, you know, we thought is uh, a trial for us to see how it plays out as a conversation, but also something that's um, not just topical, but is, I'm going to use the word serious for want well, of a better uh, word. You know, the other, you know the, other, the other rationale in a sense is you and I are both completely embroiled in the issue of leadership. Uh, and we often think about it as, you know, le- leading teams or leading organizations or leading departments or whatever it may be. But, you know, leading nations, um, uh, leading the world uh, yeah. is, on, is, is in our ambit still. Um, and I, I am, I don't know about you, but I am troubled by what I see unfolding in Afghanistan at the moment and at Kabul airport. You know, we, what, what we have in a nutshell is... Um, a nation that for 20 years um, has been embroiled in what is variously called a, a war or an occupation or whatever it may be. But now that that has been decided to, to come to an end uh, very abruptly, it's causing mayhem. And, and the hope, of course, is that that mayhem is only short-lived. But boy, it's intensely painful in that time. But I don't know about you, but I, I personally feel troubled by this. I feel troubled by it on lots of levels. I mean, not, not least because what seems to be happening feels to me to be breaking all of the rules of good leadership. 
Um, and the second thing is, it is jeopardizing trust. And I, I, I'm a trustee of a, of a charity. And if, um, if anything was going to be jeopardizing the reputation or, the, or trust in that charity, we'd have to report it to the Charity Commission. Uh, nations don't have to do that, but they do have to live with the consequences. Um, and just a, thirdly, just at a, at a human level, I feel completely helpless to do anything about it. Uh, but I would like to talk it through. Yeah, and we we actually did discuss, you know, is this topic heading going to be values, which will lead us to Afghanistan? Or And I actually thought, you know, do you know what, let's just say that's in essence what we want to talk about. And that leads to, I think, three things that I noticed. Trust is, I think, something we need to understand. I've also got competence because that's relevant. And when I think about leadership, all the espousals, all the inspirational conversations in the world, but if it doesn't sit underpinned by competence, then to some regard, I dis I disregard your 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 leadership cry to you know join join the foray because I go listen, my friend, if you can't even get the basics right, then that's that's a difficult thing to swallow. And and then underpinning that or part of that is as we were discussing is is values. What are we seeing in there? that is is it just a is it a breach of values as in some people are just not worth trying to save is it a breach of competence we just didn't have a communication strategy in place to get a, get people out is it about trust as in Los Alamos? we had a relationship with certain people in this in this country that has been built up for over a, you know a decade and you know are we just walking away with it because they're not inverted commas american well let, me, know, so, let me put the, let me put that picture together if yeah. i yeah of course. For me, trust has got four four elements. We, we, we've talked about oh. this briefly on an, on an earlier podcast, but, but for me, competence is a part of the trust equation. It's really hard to trust someone or somebody which is not competent. Secondly is care. They need to care about something other than just themselves. Thirdly is consistency. Is the way they were yesterday a reasonable guide to how they're going to be tomorrow? And the final one is courage, which means are they prepared to stand up and be counted when things are tough? Now, you know, when I when I think about how nations are likely to look at what's happened in Afghanistan, my my feeling is that some of those tests have failed quite badly. You mentioned competence. You know, the, the, a number of uh, former senior soldiers have come onto the media recently in the UK and said, "Look, if we'd been charged with getting all of our people out, we could do it." We could have done it extremely easily, particularly when we were running most of the country or occupied most of the country, and we had a kind of cordon sanitaire uh, around Kabul. Would have done a staggered exit. What it would have required, what it would have required, is tell us that we're going to withdraw. Don't put a false deadline on it, and if you do, make it some way hence some distance into the future. Uh, but ideally, don't put a deadline on it until we started this evacuation, until we started to get out some of the key people, until at least we put the plan in place to get those people out. So, so the competence issue, I think, we fail the trust uh, test, firstly, on competence. If, if anyone knew that they were going to pull the plug, they should have thought about how do we 
um, make sure that the damage is minimized and put that plan in place. The, the senior the senior military folks have been saying very publicly, we could have done that very easily, but not in the timescales that have been imposed upon us. Secondly, care. You know, if you remember, the reason that two decades ago the the Allied forces went into Afghanistan was because we there's two reasons. One is we care about ourselves and we want to prevent that country being a, 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 a sort of hotbed of, of um, <laughs> apprenticeship for, for, uh, for terrorists. <clears throat> but the second thing is we, we also care about, for example, girls and their education, the role of women in society and so on. And we, we, we have a, a need. We feel that we can bring about both of those ends preventing terrorism uh, in our neck of the woods by stopping it there. But also we can, we can do some good things for, for nation building um, in, in that country. The third is consistency. Well, you know, for two decades, we've been saying one set of things and now we're saying something quite different. So I think it fails that test. I don't doubt courage. I don't doubt at all that the people uh, involved in Afghanistan on the, on the Allied side are hugely courageous. I also don't doubt it, incidentally, on the part of the Taliban. I think they're pretty courageous as well. But, 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 but the point is, I think that those first three trust tests might well be being failed before our very eyes. And when I look at courage, I think the courage of people that have never had the phrase, you know, boots on the ground, have never been at the pointy end of the spear, I think courage is an interesting thing because the courage to ask others what should i be doing the courage to maybe take a little bit of time to understand you know sometimes you've got to have the courage to make a quick decision and sometimes you've got to have the courage to delay a decision the courage to maybe say the reaction that we've seen is not the one we expected Therefore, we're going to shift or calibrate whatever the we'll change you know. our mind. Yeah, exactly. And actually, what we're going to do is we're sending everybody back in. We're going to regain control. We're going to. It's going to take another three months. And who knows? Who knows? I'm. You know, it's 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 easy to talk from a distance. But so I think the courage. This isn't fixed bayonets up the hill courage. This is the courage maybe to do what we ask leaders to do all the time, which is to be, you know, to be, to show their vulnerability without considering themselves to be vulnerable. And I think that the media or the people that train people in power about what their perception of media is, be strong, show, you know, don't turn, you know, never wrong, never apologize. So, there's something demonstrably wrong there where what I actually see with something like Afghanistan, there's a couple of things going on. Of course, there's a geopolitical set of decisions of which I understand a portion of it. There's financial decisions about, listen, are we just, how long is this thing just going to go on? You know, there's a, you know, at some point, et cetera. But then there's just that whole truth right now, which is that media frenzy. And, and in some respects, I think um, what I see going on there is I wonder if the social media wasn't like it is, if we went back 20 years, if they just go, do you know what, just because it would be just a newspaper headline. It wouldn't be this constant, you know, sort of chaos. Would they be able to take a step back 
Well, but let, they don't have the courage. They don't have the courage to do so. So I'm interested let, in courage. Let's be clear about where we are in history. Mm. Um, the media, the media. If you think, of, if you go back 150 years, you go back into the 19th century. Yeah. How did people know what was happening in any war zone? It was newspapers. Yep. After that, it became telegraph. You know, a little bit of Morse code on the telegraph. Mm. And then it became radio. So, you know, the First World War, arguably, radio brought it home to us. But Vietnam wasn't the Second World War, but Vietnam, they say, was lost in the sitting rooms of America because television yes. brought the war into my living room. Yeah. yeah. Now we have social media, and that makes it not about bulletins at 10 and at 6 in the afternoon. Mm. It's a constant stream 24-7, never shuts off. Um, and so the world knows what's happening, literally, maybe not quite in real time, but almost in real time. Um, so we, there's an immediacy of that impact. And so scrutiny is um, to be expected, I think, because everybody can see what's happening. They mm. might not have a, um, a, a very kind of uh, accurate view of it, but certainly opinions and um, individual perceptions are shut shuttled around the world really fast. The thing I feel bad about is that despite all of that, most of us feel powerless uh, to, to influence what's going on. You know, my, what, 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 what would my voice say? My voice would say, for God's sake, stay there long enough to get the people out who have a right to come out. Um, and that for me is, is something I would want to say to someone, but I can shout it as loud as I like. I don't have access to people making those decisions. The um, ex-Navy SEAL, um, very well-known character called Jocko Willink, and um, an absolute force of a human being, and he's mm. all over social media doing leadership development and things like that. He's on podcasts, but he's ex-SEAL um, Team 6 leader, all of this. So, you know, and he put out a video, I think it was yesterday, mm. um, slightly unsure of the timeline, but definitely within the last sort of 48 hours of him uh, role-playing being the president. And... Uh, it's very interesting. And what he does is he actually goes, um, uh, paraphrasing, uh, you know, hello, everybody, you know, uh, right, we've made a mistake. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to go back in. We're going to take control. Uh, we're going to do that within 48 hours. And if anybody's got a problem with that, stay out of our way. Yeah. Uh, you know, very forthright, you know, we, you know, and he's very clinical uh, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so he's, he's, he's done this thing as a kind of indicator because he is somebody that, you know, he, our podcast is here, his podcast is up there. <laughs> but, but that root, that desire to express, I think, that to be heard for the opinion uh, of the everyday person, I think is a frustration. And some people have an outlet. You know, they got a big podcast. You know, we've got a smaller podcast, <laughs> but you can talk amongst your friends. You can post on social media. You can try and, you know, put something into the world like we're, we're, we're doing now. So I think, yeah, there are these frustrations that um, 
what do we do? You know, and it could be when you see famine, you know, it could be, but that reaction, that sense of powerlessness, which isn't answered by just, you know, give all your money to a, you know, some, some sort of uh, charity to, to, to enable, but it's, it, I think it is a sense of frustration in people in power. And well, it's looking at it is that. that. And yet, and yet I've also got the words ringing in my ear of my good friend, John Richton, who, um, was a is a sensational businessman, very successful man. Was finance director at British Airways. Went to run a, and turned around a, a huge supermarket company in Europe, and then ran Rolls Royce for a number of years, and now sits as a non-exec director on a number of boards. He is a really very very capable leader, and his mantra is always, you know, leadership is hard, commentary is easy. Mm. You know, so, and, and in a sense, you know, we we're playing armchair quarterback here. Uh, and, and trying to suggest how the game should have been played. You know, we actually don't have to throw the ball. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm very, very mindful that it's easy to do what we're doing, which is to be wise after the fact, to, to be wise uh, at a distance. Uh, it's very easy. But, it, but, the, but the opinions of people like us, just ordinary folks, n- need to be um, available to those people making decisions, because if, if we have one thing we can do, of course, is we can use our votes wisely when it comes to the general election next time around. But that feels too small, too distant, too generic. You know, how do they know what we're trying to give them feedback on? And I don't know of a way other than doing what we're doing, which is to sort of put opinions out there and see, and see what kind of uh, feedback we get and, and how that provokes uh, debate. I've, I've been trying to write some blogs about leadership over the last number of years since becoming a professor on the subject. Uh, and each time I'm trying to say, look, here's, here's, a, here's an idea that you might want to, to work with. Mm. But I am, I am genuinely troubled if in, in trying to create a world which has certain values at the heart of it, we sacrifice them in the very action of trying to preserve them, if you see what I mean. You know, so we, if, you, if you talk to the people who went into Afghanistan in the first place, they would talk about respect for human life. They would talk about, uh, you know, giving everyone a fair a fair chance in in life in in that country. About sort of trying to not just be tough on terrorism, but also tough on the causes of terrorism by trying to sort of give people a better a better chance in life. They'd say all of those good things. It feels like we've sacrificed almost all of them over a four or five week period in which we've said we're out and, you know, we're about to go in, in 48 hours from now, whatever it may be. Um, mm. I'm, I'm troubled by that apparent contradiction. And maybe I've got it wrong, but it looks like a contradiction. And, and maybe that's something that says, when I look at leaders at um, in a commercial context, that espousal of values, but actually the push on commercials at certain times in <clears throat> the the uh the ebb and flow of of what's going on in an organization where actually you know values get sacrificed for potentially a commercial output so because that 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 balance maybe goes goes awry and i think that's that's a similar linkage i i also think what i'm really sensitive to is decisions are generally always made with when i say that not always decisions are I think often made with good intentions. It's and again, I think that's a lovely, you know, phrase. Leadership is hard, commentary is easy. You know, 2020 hindsight's a beautiful thing. You know, those kind of things. And you're right. So I don't, 
I very much doubt anybody made the decision with the intent that this would be the output. I don't think I have an issue with decisions. I think what I have a what my anxiety, concern, awareness is is the is the pace or the willingness to change tack and to shift and calibrate in the moment when data is indicating something's not right. And so I look, as you write, as an armchair observer, I can look at that and go, what would stop you from going back? It's not as if you don't have the, the, the wherewithal to do it and going, we will, we will create a safe zone. We will have corridors of entry into, you know, the, the exit points. We will, I'm sure, you know, as somebody in a military, if I said, can you do that? They go, oh yeah, of course I can do that. <laughs> yeah. I can do it tomorrow if you like, yeah. if I'm given. So I think it's that hesitation around what stops people. Is it competence? Is it courage? Is it that changing a view and being seen to change? That's what I, I think, think. And I think it comes. I think this comes back. I think you're you're hinting at a, a theme that we've that we've touched on a number of times before, which is about you know, do we believe in single point leadership? You know, the, the mm-hmm. idea of a prime minister, the idea of a president, the idea of a chairman or whatever. It 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 feels as if the implication is that the leadership resides in this one person, and therefore we're dependent on that one person's good judgment for making good decisions. Now, you you know that that I don't believe in that, and, and neither do you. We believe in collective leadership, incomplete leaders, but complete leadership therefore comes from incomplete leaders working effectively together mm. so that you've got all the complementary differences playing out against each other. And, and when you're making a decision like that, instead of saying, I've said we're going to be out on this date, we're going to be out on this date, and that's my view, and I'm the boss. Instead, what you'd be saying is, look, I believe we need to get out on this date. What am I missing? You know, tell me how this could fail. If we were to, if we were to, to conduct what my dear friend Owen Derbyshire calls a pre-mortem, a, what a pre-mortem? A pre-mortem is, imagine five years from now that people look back on the decision we've just taken today and said what a disaster it was. What will they be criticizing? Let's do that ahead of time, five years ahead of time. Let's do a pre-mortem now. Why would this fail? And it seems to me that, that I'm not seeing enough evidence of that kind of thinking. What I'm seeing is evidence of we make a decision, we're going to put whatever spin on it we can, we're, not gonna, we're gonna have a party line, we're gonna make sure everybody toes that party line. Um, and and we're going to keep defending it and defending it and defending it, which is the opposite of what you're saying, which is about being willing to have the courage to say, you know what, we might have got this one wrong and we're going to rethink it. Um, but, but also, it, I don't think it's sound leadership either. What you need is for people to have a proper debate and show the evidence of that debate in the decisions that they take. And if it's the case that it's better to get rid of those <laughs> what, what Biden calls the forever wars. And, and funnily enough, Trump thought, had that, that idea as well. Let's get rid of those. That still might be a good thing. But the question is how? How? Yeah. And, and this is the bit where when I look at the people on the ground here, the interpreters, the administrators, the uh, whoever might be at risk, even people that maybe supplied food to embassies, you know, who, who, who I, I have no idea what the criteria is for being, you know, 
in a dangerous spot. But some of them are really obvious, and the interpreters as as grab the headline as listen. You know, they're indicative of the people that have, you know, put themselves in harm's way to enable us. Now that's the bit where I think if if it had been a a debacle at a kind of military level getting out. Yeah, we left a few helicopters behind. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a, you know, a mess up. We go, hey, stuff of life. But actually what we're seeing is human beings and their family being put at risk because it looks like what what is that? Is that is that then a competence issue? Is that then a values issue? Did somebody just go, hey, listen, look, we don't want the forever war. We want to get out. Okay. So listen, what are the sensitivities here? Back to your point. What do I not? What am I not seeing? And at some point, did somebody just not go? We need the first thing we need to do is get everybody out that's going to be basically put to death if we leave. Yeah. So we need them out first, probably quietly, and then etc. Whatever that process yeah. is. Yeah. Now, as a non-expert. I'm pretty sure if you and I and half a dozen people we know sat in a room, we'd have come up with that. We'd have gone, well, let's get all the people at greatest risk out first. I reckon that would have come out first. Well, look, let, let's 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 make this more let's make this more generalizable because now we can bring it back to teams and, and organizations and so on. Because you, you've talked about values now a few times. I think that the purpose of values is 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 at least twofold, and there might be other reasons as well. But let me just mention two. One is we are often forced to improvise because the world doesn't work the way we think it's about to work. We make a decision. We realize that some factor uh, has flown in uh, from left field and now we've got to rethink on the hoof. So, so improvisation is um, a fundamental capability to, to be able to master in a world which is fast moving and unpredictable. Okay, it's inevitable, you'll, you'll be forced into uh, an improvisational scenario at some point, and probably quite often. So in order for you not to have to just live off your wits and come up with any bright idea you can think of at that time, there are certain kinds of um, rules or guidelines that you can take with you all the time into whatever unpredictable situation you find yourself in. One is the purpose that we're trying to serve. Uh -huh. So if I run an organization, I need to know what is this organization about? What are we trying to achieve in the long term? And the second is, what are the values that guide us? Now, I can take those with me into any situation. So hmm. let's go back to Afghanistan for a second. The purpose was to halt terrorism in its tracks. The values that we're trying to be guided by are those liberal Western values that put a very, very high price on human life. We don't, we don't think of it cheaply. Um, and those two, those two um, factors become guidelines that we can take with us at, at all times into any unexpected, unpredictable, fast-moving situation. So, so values are not just a sort of nice to have. They become a bit like if you're, if you're a jazz musician and you've got to improvise, you've always got the rules of harmony in your head. You know, you, can, you, can, you know what chords are made up of which notes and what therefore is a scale that, that fits in that key. You can choose to break it if you like, but you usually will come back to it um, because 
other, the absence of those sorts of guidelines leave you completely floundering. So I think values and purpose, which we've not mentioned much, um, are fundamental in situations like this, fast moving, unpredictable. And I buy into that. And I use the word craft a lot, which is this idea that as a leader, as a leadership team, we're constantly working on our skills that are the vehicle for delivering our purpose and our values and our commercial imperative. So, you know, just being able to run a coherent meeting or make tough decisions or whatever that, 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 or, or just say, I'm sorry, or whatever it is, that the craft in, in what we're doing. So yes, the purpose is, is key, that the values are key. And then there's the craft. And if we looked at what's going on, on that global scale, in essence, it's a team effectiveness <laughs> issue. <laughs> you know, I kind of look at that and go, because actually, if this was a corporate team, you know, we'd look at that. And if this was, I don't know, we've we've had a uh, hundred retail outlets in um, in France. We're now getting out of France <laughs> for whatever reasons, <laughs> you know. Uh, and what we did was we um, we shut it up. We shut them all over the weekend. And then we emailed everybody on Sunday. You did what? Who have worked with an organisation that got out of Norway, right? Well, uh, a retail organisation. And what did they do? They sold their Norway business to another business, right? Uh, and Cineworld, Cineworld shut down. In, sorry, move out. Yeah. right. And Cineworld shut down in the UK, and people were finding out finding out about it through social media. You know, great thanks. So. One could argue, well, we, we have a purpose here to be commercially sound and we're, we have values here that would have all been written all over the place and in documents about, you know, treating people with respect because there's no company that doesn't have that in there somewhere. Uh, but what will, but when push comes to shove, actually what we did was, uh, and so people were turning up on the Monday morning confused and their mortgage, their fears of mortgages and how am I going to pay and what? So we didn't value the human being now you could say then so where's the craft so the purpose may have been there the values may have been there which which is fine but actually where's the craft or maybe the commitment to the craft of doing these things in, a, in an appropriate way because what i don't see is i imagine that per se everybody is individually competent to a greater or lesser degree. I mean, that's a debate we could lose ourselves in. But actually, as an effective team, hey, we put this into operation at nine o'clock. At 10 past nine, we realized, Houston, we have a problem. How does that team come together, have the tough conversation, say, what's our shared narrative? Okay, so we're going to have to throw ourselves on our sword here. But let's be seen to be strong about making a change rather than, you know, the, the perceived strength, but the weakness of holding to a, a, a commitment that we now realise is wrong. Talk about commitment, and I think that's, yeah. that's a really important word. But but I, I'm, I'm not sure I think of commitment as to a craft. I see commitment to values. So, so this morning, this very morning, I was reading the newspaper, mm. and the debate that's going on at the moment is they didn't put it in these terms, but basically how many human beings are we prepared to sacrifice to bring back one Chinook helicopter? Mm, okay. And, and the way it works is they've got a whole bunch of wide-bodied um, cargo planes and they're ferrying people out 
at the moment in them. And we know that they can't get all the people out. But there's a big commitment not to leave useful equipment behind, like a Chinook helicopter, which costs you know, hundreds of millions of pounds. Of, and, and so the debate this morning is, at what point do we start to say, sorry, no, we're not going to take more, any more people out, even though you've got the right to come. We're going to take a helicopter out, another helicopter out, another yeah. helicopter. So, so that, that, for me, is where the rubber really hits the road. So how many people are we prepared to sacrifice for one Chinook helicopter? How many people is that worth? So that's where, I mean, these things are not, sometimes I feel, even though we have the conversation, what's more important than your values? But I, you know, I can't always put those things on a, on a weighted balance and know exactly where they, where they sit. But I might think, yeah, but uh, the craft of this team, this whatever that wherever that sits, to have those conversations, the commitment to yes, the values, but us being able to the commitment to the craft of being able to work through those conversations at pace, because they you know, and I don't think anyone's. I wouldn't even want to say which one comes you know the cart before the horse. We could debate that one you know, uh, until we come home. But I think leadership is holding a lot of truths, you know, and still functioning. It, it is about actually, have they ever been a team? If you look from, you know, the president of the United States through to, you know, who, whatever the, the person that's in control on the ground in Afghanistan, how connected are they? Are they chatting? Are they, is, is, are they on the phone and going, Hey, can I just speak to the president? Yeah. Listen, I'm, Joe, we've got a bit of a problem here, my friend. You know, do they, ha again, who knows? But the 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 intimacy of conversation may be rather than the protocol of reporting. The I, I wonder what's going on there. You'd hope that the parameters for those decisions have been agreed sometime ahead of time so that that, that commander on the ground doesn't, doesn't need to talk to the president. Instead, you know, the, 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 the intention of the operation as a whole has been made clear to everybody so that now people on the ground day to day can make the right decisions because they understand what we're trying to achieve and what the guiding principles are that we're, that we're to use. What I don't want to create is a bottleneck where the people have got to get through to the White House to make any kind yeah. of decision. And by the way, I, I don't think what I said about the Chinook helicopter, you might imply from that 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 my view is, you know, no human life is worth the Chinook helicopter. Well, I know things are more complex than that, because, you know, if that Chinook helicopter can be used to kill people, <laughs> then it's it's lives versus lives. You know, blow so it up. it's it's, um, it's a real question that has to be debated. But yeah. on how do you make it? And I'd like to have I'd like to feel that somehow in our society, the views of honest folks, just decent, ordinary, ordinary people in the street, maybe, maybe like you and me uh, and our friends, that somehow the sensitivities of citizens somewhere gets weighed in that equation. You know, what, 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 what can I explain to you? OK, think of it selfishly. What can I explain to my constituents, to my electorate, to, to the people who can give, keep me in power or get rid of me? On what basis am I going to make that case? Mm. And is it defensible? And I, and I think that, that that's a, a terribly yeah. important thing for us all to hold in mind. 
Well, my nine-year-old, I, I limit what he can watch on TV because it's sensitive stuff that's on there. But he's got a sense of things. And he said, what's going on there, Dad? And I went, oof, blimey. Because <laughs> he's nine. I went, basically, uh, you know, the, the, the Americans and, the, you know, et cetera, we were in a country and now they're leaving. And he went, oh, okay. So why are they leaving those people behind? I thought, oh, flipping eckers, where do I even go with that? But the point is, regardless of my rubbish answer that I probably gave, part of this is when you're explaining to somebody that doesn't understand the mechanics of the complexity, what sounds reasonable? <laughs> and what sounds just right? You know, if you're, if you're talking to somebody that hasn't got a, a filter or hasn't got a lens because they just haven't gone, I'm not a conservative, I'm not a liberal, I'm not a, I'm nine. Right. So what seems right and at nine will get people that need to be got out, out. <laughs> that's, that's kind of it, you know, and I and when I'm working with organizations, I very often go, I understand what you're saying. But to somebody who's right down the bottom of the hierarchical food chain, how would you explain it to them in a manner that they could understand it? As a way of checking, you're not wrapping yourself up in your own BS. Yeah, that's right. I.e., if Bob in the call center or Sue in the call center doesn't get it, maybe it's not right. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> there was a time, this is, it's, this is a slightly old in, uh, commercial story, but um, Johnson & Johnson, if you remember, they had the problem with Tylenol. Um, yeah. in which someone was poisoning Tylenol. So they took Tylenol off all shelves, invented a tamper-proof package and put it back again. But mm. they took the hit on um, Tylenol, which is one of, which was a really big product for them. Yeah, They took it off worldwide, said, we'll, we'll, forego, uh, we'll forego that. And, and what had happened uh, just before that was they came, came up with this thing called the Johnson & Johnson Credo, which was their values uh, yep. statement. And the chief exec went to every country in which Johnson & Johnson uh, had a, 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 a sizable presence um, and ran what they called credo challenge meetings in which, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but reportedly what happened is they sort of say, this is the credo, this is what we believe in. Yep. Now, does anyone want to suggest to me ways that we're not living up to this? So you can challenge it. Do we do we mean it or not? We, you know. Now again, I, I wasn't there. I don't know. But but that idea I like because what it says is, I'm prepared to, not only to declare what our values are, but I'm prepared also to be challenged by our behaviour. Because if if our behaviour doesn't reflect those values, then the piece of paper is worth no more than the piece of paper. Um, but if we're prepared to take a hit from time to time. Uh, to show that we really do live these values, then you can trust them. You can believe in them. Um, and, and I found that uplifting until I then discovered, apparently, that some critics said, uh, ah, but they, they also knew that Johnson & Johnson baby oil was being used as a sun tanning aid at the time, and, and, and they, they didn't take that off the shelves. You know, so, so, of course, there, there are two sides to every argument, but, but this, and this is a number of years ago, but the idea, the core idea I really like, which is these are our values, and I'm prepared to be challenged according to them. And I, wondered, I wonder exactly how 
the decisions that are being taken at the moment internationally stack up if you were to go into that kind of values challenge setting? And of course, the, the, the truth is, there is no mechanism for doing that for nations. Even the United Nations um, ha has the floor of the Security Council, which has to be unanimous, and therefore people can block uh, any inconvenient uh, conclusion there. But, but the ballot box is one of those um, values challenge opportunities. But I, I, what I think happens, in our country at least, is that people, people vote according to historical patterns. You know, my dad's a labor man and I'm a labor man too. You know, my granddad was, you know, all of that. Now, it, yes, in the last election, we began to see some shifting of that, but I would love to encourage us as citizens to think uniquely for each election. Who's standing? What do they stand for? What are they proclaiming? Um, and then when I see what they do in power, the next time it comes around, I'm going to hold them accountable. And there's a big thing here about people's, I wouldn't say capability, because people can pretty well do anything they want to if they're interested. But I think this is something about the quality of leadership that we see that would indicate to me that people are disconnected from politics in the sense of, is this the best we've got to offer? Because when we, when I see the commentary and I see people in positional power, particularly in the politic arena, what I actually see is uh, staged responses. They are, they're in the generically true, they're ambiguous, they're artfully vague, they're manufactured it's so rare to see somebody actually just talk openly it's it's because that fear of the soundbite the the written word not contextualizing the entire argument the so i i think what we what i see is a lot of fear they wouldn't say they're fearful they would say they're navigating the social climate or they'll use some you know vocabulary that says that they're being artful because they've been you know they have people to help them do that but i think well, they're, they're skilled scared. rhetoricians they you know they they use yeah. rhetoric um yeah. to persuade and they're trained you know to, to to answer difficult media questions by not answering difficult media questions at all and so when we look at the uh I think it's the Edelman Trust Survey, the annual, you know, it's been the lowest levels of trust for the last two or three years yes. in all aspects from uh, charities to the church to um, commercial organisations through to where, whatever it might be. And it's not that people have a lack of trust with, in, in essence, the organisation or the concept of it. It's just that they have a lack of trust in the people leading them. Because what we're seeing is actually there's something about people in positions of positional power that doesn't inherently fill us with a sense of belief that they are operating from a place of clear purpose that is then backed up with their values, which is then driven by their commitment to their competence. <laughs> Whichever order we want to put that in, not too bothered. But the reality is, I think we look upwards and I think we are disappointed. 
And I think this is indicative of that. I think that's right. But I, but I'm, I'm, the conclusion I come to is that however small an action any one of us can take, we should take it. So, for example, if we look at a major corporation and lament the fact that they don't pay enough tax in this country, don't buy from them. You know, Ah. it's a small, it's a small decision, but just don't do it. You know, my wife and I um, are trying to be much more specific about where we buy things online from, because we just want to encourage certain businesses more than others. You know, so rather than just go blindly to um, just any kind of generic search, which typically throws up, you know, the, the, the big boys, the, the, the Amazons yeah. of this world, yeah. you know, we will, we, yesterday <laughs> wanted to buy a pair of kitchen scissors, yeah. <laughs> you know, big, big, big purchase, you know, we're last of the big spenders. But, um, but, but what, what we did was we thought which local shops might well have an online presence and sell kitchen scissors, because we'd like to support them rather than just sort of do the easy thing, put one entry in and, and buy kitchen scissors, you know, very easily. But, but the point is that my belief is that we're not completely powerless. We can only take small, each of us can only take these small decisions. But if collectively as a society, we get into that idea that I can take a small decision, but many of us, millions of us, adding those small decisions together actually can create big pressure, then I believe we should be trying to do that. And this is where making judgments on other people's values and then actually looking to oneself and saying, well, mm. what are we actively doing? So, okay, so, yeah, you we, we look at a certain situation and they go, okay, so what are you going to do about it? Do you vote? Mm. Uh, And do you know why you vote if you vote? Are you voting because the character seems agreeable? Are you agreeing because you understand, are you voting because you understand the politic? Are you taking into a, why? And actually, I would say if we take, I don't know how many people in the UK right now, let's say 70 odd million, you know, however many that is, and those that can vote. And we went round and said, why don't you vote? Is it that, well, I am so disconnected from them that I don't, which actually maybe it should be, yes, but maybe you should be so connected with your desire to send a message and to have an impact that you should. And so there is a kind of a disconnection that I think allows incompetence to thrive because the populace are not verbalizing an opinion in a regularly coherent manner so that i think is it's we've then become our own the engineer of our own demise because we're so disconnected we don't bother which means incompetence can continue because the majority say do you know what i'm just trying to live my own life and get through the week my my friend yeah, that, that's right you know and, and I, I fully understand that it's very nice for you and I, who, to, to, we can pontificate about these things. Yeah. If we're in a very comfortable position. You know, we've got enough food, we've got a nice place to live and all of that yeah. sort of stuff. And we have a very easy life. But I do think there are three things that, that all of us can do. We can, we can vote and, and put our, place our vote with care. We can choose where and how we spend our money. And who, in other words, who we're going to give our business to. And the third thing we can do is we can talk to people. 
Mm. You know, so if, if people express opinions that we don't agree with, we don't have to get you know, aggressive about it, but we can at least put the count of you. And these are three things that, that it seems to me all of us can do as citizens, um, certainly adult citizens, um, that, that, that are not, we are not powerless. However powerless we may feel, those three things can be done. Mm. And, in, in, and in, in businesses, may I say, we're not powerless again, because it, it does feel to me that, that the culture of an organisation is simply the, the kind of aggregate of the values and practices that you see throughout the organization. So if I want to try to have an influence, I can influence the people I work with. And we can sort of start to create these little pools of these little islands of alternative thinking. And it's not disrespectful to do that if you're committed to the same purpose and values of the, of, of the organization as a whole. Um, but uh, but that, it, does, it does require us to not to go down the, ro the, the road of least effort. We do have to think a little bit about the, the political issues, the commercial issues and the, and the debates that we're prepared to enter into. Um, but we can at least do something. So there is something about being connected to the world that you live in. There is something about having a connection to, you know, you could say the environment, political, whatever, um, you know, as much as ecological, but there's something here about that, uh, it's easy to disconnect from an organization. It's, it's you see people. I see people disconnect from relationships, <laughs> from from families, you know, etc. Because why? Well, because it's the easy option. It's less painful. It's a it's a safeguard. And if I I'm not a political person per se, but I've noticed just in the wanting to have a conversation with certain people, some are like, yeah, I'm not really into the politic but this has woken me up a little bit i'm paying attention to it yes we can have a conversation of course you've got some that are all over it and then a, there's a majority that go oh i just can't i haven't got the energy to talk about it it just it just it just upsets me or it just it's just not i just don't want it in my brain or um it, the, I, well i can't really comment because the complexities of why it's like that are too much for me and i'm almost like yeah but you know i don't think you even need to understand how it happened you can there's something about understanding is what's happening correct regardless of how it got there oh guys too much i've you know i've got too much on my plate we're picking the kids up and <laughs> this that, and the yeah. other and there's a lot of people that just haven't got the wherewithal or the headspace for it and I, whatever, you know, be it in an organization, be it within a, I'll just do my job. Look, let the big boys sort it out. As long as I'm getting paid, I'll do a good job at a local level, you know, whatever. Yeah. Enough. It's I, a I safeguard. It's a, and it's full. Yeah. But, yeah. but, the, but the, other, the other bit, though, I think, is that we have to be willing also to explore alternative points of view. Yes. Um, you know, I, I often talk to people about sort of what newspaper that newspaper they read if they read them at all, um, you know. And and some will say, oh, you know, I, I read the Times, and and some of our friends say, oh God, I don't read that. I'm not I, I'm not a conservative, you know. I ah. I read the Guardian. I read the Guardian. Which know, tribe? Not, which tribe are you in, right? Exactly. But <laughs> yeah. you know, what that does is, I mean, I, I I read both because I'm 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 trying to I'm trying at least to, to sort of live the value that says, I, I want to understand both sides of the, of the debate. Yeah. And that may not be a very big range, the, the Times and Guardian, but, but I think it's, 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 it's some yep. 
sense of, of, of alternative. But, but it's because I've got ringing in my ears now uh, an absolutely wonderfully ele elegant phrase that came from Jonathan Sachs's book on morality. He said that the, the problem, and it's, it's, the, it's this echo chamber idea, you know, that we, mm. that social media, we're constantly reinforcing the views we already have. You know, what we want is to people to tell us the same things that we believe. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but he had this wonderful term. He said, he said, these days, we live in disconnected islands of the like-minded. Mm. Disconnected islands of the like-minded. And, 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 and I was thinking, gosh, that's an elegant phrase, but also, my goodness, that's dangerous, isn't it? Because it means that you, you come to believe that your view of the world is the only sensible view of the world, and there is no sensible alternative. So... Um, if we're going to place our vote with care, spend our money with care and engage in debate when we get the chance to do so, um, we can't afford to live in disconnected islands of the like-minded. We need to understand the arguments more broadly than that. We need to at least to be able to see both sides of it. And I do believe that that's a really rather important aspect of what it is to be a human being as well. And you know, I, I kind of think it's always been like that. You know, I think depending if you know if you were in service, you you had that. You know, if you were the, if you're the one that owned the the estate, if you were the one that was in parliament, or you know whatever it is. You know, these are all islands that are disconnected from the other realities. So I get that, and I do buy into it. I I also think that this social media has allowed us to, you know. I wrote him, I don't reference my book very often, but I just wrote that, you know, back in the day, the Vikings used to invade and, you know, they'd destroy your village, take your children and raise them as their own. You know, it's always been bonkers, right? The only difference is now if they landed, there'd be somebody with their camera live streaming it as people came onto the beach and you, you'd hear about it instantly while you sat on the loo in Chesterfield. So there's a, there's a closeness to it. But I and I think at first we were like wow, but then of course what happens is you get used to it, you get familiar with it, you desensitize to it. You know, I, I remember when the Michael Jackson uh, thriller video was put out after twelve o'clock because it was considered to be too scary. I mean, now we look at it like <laughs> like a like a comedy video. You know, we we adjust and our ability to watch things and see things and, and have them go. So there is this um, need to not give up your, I don't want to say energy, but to give up your sensitivity, your calibration, your sense of right and wrong, and to have a reaction to it and to not forsake it. I think, and and end up by placing yourself in a kind of semi-submissive space, and that's when I think, as individuals or teams or communities, we use our we lose our resilience because we're not. We may be angry, but it's then an internalized anger, and it's not going into something positive. Yeah. So, in a sense, what we've done go and do something. What we've done in this conversation is, if I, I reflect on it now, and it, and it maybe suggests that, that, that we, should, we should stop, but, but the, we started with, we're troubled by a number of things that are happening on the international stage at the moment. It seems to offend our values, but it also seems to offend against the principles of good leadership and of, and of trust. What we've ended up with is 
I'm not powerless. There are things I can do. They're small, but if enough of the, enough of us do these things, yes, the impact can be significant. Yes, and I think that is a it is a good place to come to a stop. And it's also, I think, something that says, call it lethargy, call it disconnection, call it whatever we want. The biggest danger, I think, to an individual, a team, a culture, uh, a country, whatever, a world, is um, what I would almost call an, I don't, I almost want to use the word ambivalence. But it's it's not really. It's not that people are ambivalent. They have the reaction, but their action is one of ambivalence. They then don't do something with it. And I think that's the danger when you feel the anxiety, but it only it manifests in a, a kind of passivity. And, and that's when it all goes horribly wrong anywhere. If I'm in a one-to-one relationship with somebody, you know, we all know people that are together that probably shouldn't be because they've kind of they're having an anxiety with each other but nobody's breaking the cycle because it's easier not to our financials are wrapped up and oh god so we'll just stay together for 30 years you know that's the same thing i work for an employee yeah but where else would i work i've been here for 25 years I, okay so i have i'm having the reaction but what am i going to do about it probably nothing it's when that happens that i think that's that's the danger zone that I think I can see anywhere as being a problem. Yes, I think I, oops, bang. that that does sound right. Because in a sense, what you're saying is there's no point lamenting unless you're prepared to do something about it. Yeah. However small it may be. Yeah, do so do something. Thing. Yeah, okay. So on that note, uh, we've solved uh, all world uh, <laughs> issues. <laughs> And the answer to all problems in the world is do something, which actually isn't probably far wrong <laughs> to a greater or lesser degree. So on that level of wondrousness from ourselves, um, great to connect again. I'll press the stop button. We'll chat and uh, I'll see you on the next one. Good enough. That was the professor and the coach. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please tell others and subscribe so you don't miss out on further episodes. Hope to see you soon. You can connect with Guy at livingbrave.com and David at pendletonking.com. Thank you.